Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We do thank you, Lord, as we just sang, uh, you're the way maker. You, uh, we thank you for making a way uh, so that we could have this relationship with you. We thank you that you provide a way that our sins could be uh, paid for. We thank you that in you there's life. And so, Father, I do pray that as we work through Uh, today's passage, and we look at really the life of these two men whose lives were radically transformed by you. Father, we pray that you would help us uh, to understand the situation that was at hand, that we would see what happened in context, and by your spirit, we ask that you would show us our great need for you. We love you, Father, and I pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the other cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he, that's Jesus, ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded, as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him, that's Jesus, to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up to the roof and they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God and they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. And Father, we do thank you for this story. We ask that you would lead us and guide us now, and it's in Christ's good name I pray, amen. Okay, so last, last week we ended with the, the story of sort of the, the, the calling 
of, of Peter. They, Jesus had been teaching on the lake. Uh, crowds had gathered around him. Peter hijacks, or no, Jesus hijacks Peter's boat, starts teaching on it. He teaches till long after lunchtime, and he decides that uh, it was time to feed the people. And so he tells Peter, who was cleaning up his nets, cleaning up all the work from his night of fishing, that he should just take some of his boats, put them out a little bit further, and catch some fish for the people to eat. And Peter kind of looked at Jesus and was like, hey, <laughs> you're the rabbi, I'm the fisherman. We've been working all night. This is a pointless request. There's no fish out there right now. But because you're my boss, I will go ahead and do it. So he pushes the boat out. They drop the nets. The nets are filled with fish, so much so that they needed help to recover the nets. Other guys come out. The nets begin breaking. The boats begin sinking. And there was fish. And Peter, in his response, uh, fell down in terror and was like, get away from me. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. There, we have no business together. He recognized who Jesus was. He understood who he was as a sinful man. And there was, there was no mixing the, these two elements together. It was the first time so far in Luke that we see the mention of sin. And Jesus then looks at Peter and he says, don't be afraid. Come after me, follow me. And we see that these, uh, these fishermen, these, these associates of Peter, that they, they walked away from everything and they began to follow Jesus. And so today's story sort of picks up. We don't know exactly uh, the location he was in while he was in one of the cities. Last week I showed, I should have, I should have put the same thing up. I didn't think we were talking geography, but he's basically in that northern region of, of Galilee on the, on the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee. And he's just kind of going through there, interacting with people. We see that while he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face, implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And so this is sort of an isolated event. It seems to be just Jesus and this, this man with leprosy. And it's important for us to sort of do, I apologize for this in advance, but we need to sort of have a little look at leprosy. Um, it's not to be confused with the modern day. I'm a little bit offended at the modern day version of it um, because today it's known as Hansen's disease. And, uh, and so thankfully it's spelled with an E and not an O. Um, but during the Old Testament times, it, it, uh, it, was, a, it was like a broad range of, of skin issues. Um, for those of you that are doing the Bible reading plan in just, you know, just a few weeks, we're going to be in the wonderful book of, of Leviticus. And then we'll eventually come to chapters 13 and 14. There's two whole chapters devoted to leprosy. Um, it's a wonderful read. Just for example, the first 13 verses of Leviticus chapter 30 begin like this, uh, 13 verses 1 through 3. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling or scab or bright spot, and it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest. The priest shall look at the mark of the skin of the body, and if the hair in the infection has turned white, and the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is an infection of leprosy. When the priest has looked at him, 
he shall pronounce him unclean. Now, this is just a little sampling. It goes on and on and on. It describes sort of like what they're supposed to do. Uh, I believe after this one, they put the individual sort of in an isolation for about seven days. And seven days later, the priest kind of goes back and looks at the wound. If it seems like it's getting better, he can declare him clean. If it seems like it's getting worse, then the person has leprosy. This whole time, the person is totally like excommunicated uh, from society. They're, no, they're not allowed to worship. They're not allowed to interact with people. They're not allowed to touch other people. If they were to touch uh, an individual within the community, that person who was touched would be declared ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Um, and it was a really a, a, a difficult thing. These two chapters go through the whole description of what leprosy is, the instructions for how to deal with leprosy, pr procedures for confirmation that it's leprosy, procedures for cleansing of leprosy, and then procedures for confirming that the person was cleansed of leprosy. So there's like this whole system uh, for like handling leprosy. Uh, rabbis during this time, they viewed leprosy as one of the most complicated and difficult things to cure. They, they didn't really know how to handle it. Um, the, the Mishnah has like this huge teaching. This is like the teaching of the rabbis from this era. It had like uh, this huge chapter in it. And as they talked about uh, leprosy, you see that the understanding of the people is this isn't just a rash, like that you, you get a rash and you go to a dermatologist. The issue is, is that they viewed this and they understood leprosy to be something much, much more severe, that there was something within the individual, that there was sin in the individual that was uh, contaminating to, to, the, to their society, to their community, things like gossip and, and along these lines, things that would, would spread and do damage to the community. And so when leprosy appeared, they believed that this was God's judgment on them. And as long as the judgment is there, then they needed to sort of, I mean, it was horrible for the individual to have to deal with this sort of uh, being kicked out of the society. Um, some of the examples in the Bible that we see sort of connected to this sort of understanding, uh, if we go well, not all the way. I'm kind of arguing with myself in my mind. The first one that I give is Moses at the burning bush. Remember, Moses has some questions and he's looking for confirmation about like, how will I know? And God says, okay, take your hand, stick it in, pull it out. Oh, leprosy, stick it back in, huh. pull it back out. Ah, oh, it's clean. Like, okay, there's confirmation. So there's one example. Then there's Miriam, who is Moses's sister, who towards the end of her life, she began gossiping and grumbling against Moses and God struck her with leprosy. And so she was kind of like, it was a bad ending for her. Then there was Naaman, the guy who came looking for a prophet of Israel because he had this terrible skin disease and he basically had to get dunked, you know, seven times or six times, whatever the number was in the river and he was cleansed of it. Um, and so the, the point, when we see leprosy in the Bible, it's not just that this person has like a rash and that they're concerned about like, oh man, like, like, I remember a couple years ago, I, uh, I got some poison oak on my property and I'm like, I'm just gonna deal with this. Like, I'm just gonna get in there. I read everything, trying to be as safe as I possibly could be safe about it. And, and I like, 
It was everywhere and it was horrific. And I would have like done anything to get rid of it. I think I talked to Daniel or maybe it was your brother afterwards. They're like, oh, you should have had me come. I'm not, I'm totally immune to the stuff. I'm like, yeah, then now you tell me. Like, was it you or are you immune to it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, like, I mean, I remember just like, I was ready to just cut my skin off to get rid of it. But this isn't what they were, this isn't what they were dealing with. This, the, the, the rash or what was on their skin was simply an indicator that there was a problem deep within them, that there was a problem between them and God and they were sinning and this was God's judgment. They were kicked out of their community. They were isolated, no touch of any people, no communication with any people. Um, For the introverts, this might sound like a wonderful punishment, but for most people, it's like not a good thing. And so the man approaches Jesus And he doesn't come to Jesus and he doesn't say, heal me. This is super important in our understanding of what what leprosy was understood at. He comes to Jesus and he asks to be cleansed. He, He doesn't ask to be healed, he asks to be cleansed. He's talking about this deeper issue within him and the, the leprosy was just a symptom of it. So he comes to Jesus. I went the wrong way in my notes, I had to go back. Let me just read the text. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy, his whole body. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face. He's bowed down before Jesus, pleading with Jesus, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me unclean. He understands that deep within him, there's a problem. There was something, we're not told what this is, but there's something separating him from God. There's sin in his life. This leprosy is just a a surface issue. He's not asking for the leprosy to to go away. He's asking for a spiritual request that Jesus would cleanse him, that Jesus would make him right, that Jesus would, would, would bring wholeness to his life so that he could be restored to his community, to his family, to the people that he knows and loves. He understood that what he was experiencing was the judgment of God in his life for something. We are not told what this something is. And it's super important for us to kind of get where this man is coming from. When I read this story, I think back in my own life, when I reached a sort of a a moment of of brokenness in my life, I'm not sure that it was my, where I came to Christ, but it was certainly a a point in my life where, where I gave my life fully to God. And I found myself at SEAL Team 3 in, our, in my cage, it's like basically a locker, but it's like a locker that you can fit in. And it's like a huge like jail cell kind of thing for all your stuff. And I had been going to church. I'd been walking with God, but I'd also been sort of living in the world and doing things. And after a weekend of, of partying and flying to Atlanta and coming back with my buddy, I, like, I just recognized the hypocrisy within me. And I recognized that I wasn't right before God. And I, I couldn't go on living these, these two lives and the way I was living them, going to church and then continuing in the world, but I didn't know how to break the cycle, but I knew that there was a problem within me. I couldn't necessarily articulate it that well during that time, but I was on my face before God saying, Lord, if you like, I want what the Bible says and you're gonna have to fix me. You're gonna have to change so I can live my life. And that seems to be, as I look back on my life, the moment when God really got a hold of me. How it's a wonderful thing. And so here this man is in the same position saying, Lord, 
Jesus, if, where, let me find it in my Bible here. Um, he saw Jesus, he, Lord, if you are willing. He's not asking if he has a capability. He understands that Jesus can do this. It's just a matter of if Jesus is willing or not, that he can be restored, that they can, he can experience wholeness and wellness. And it's important for us to see that this is what the man is asking for. He's not asking for Jesus for a little uh, uh, cortisone, you know, like Jesus, we haven't invented cortisone yet. Do you have a little like something that I could rub on my skin so that the rash will go away? He's asking for something far, far deeper, something that's spiritual in nature and that this, this leprosy was simply a manifestation of a deeper issue. And so Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I am willing to be cleansed. So, so right away, like this, this sort of violates all sorts of protocol because if you have a person with leprosy, they're viewed as contagious. And unclean things make clean things unclean. Clean things don't make unclean things clean. And so Jesus reaches out and touches this individual. We don't know uh, how long this has been, I suspect by the response that we see at the end of the story that this is a man who's had leprosy for a long time, that the community knew who this individual was. This, this is, we're not talking like a week or a month. I think we're talking years. That's just my thinking though. And so now Jesus touches this guy. Who knows when the last time this man has felt touch? Jesus touches him and he tells him, I'm willing and this, this week, it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, it's funny how the, not, not the news cycle, but like Christian news, how things kind of explode in weird ways. Uh, you know, last week there was a game. It didn't go the way I wanted it to go. <laughs> it, was, it was rigged. And, uh, uh, but so I was, I was watching said game and, uh, and then there was that commercial, the He Gets Us commercial. It came on. And I remember, like, James was over there, and I'm like, I'm like yeah, I don't know anything about these commercials, but they're kind of like, they're, they're, they're interesting. Like, it's, there's something that's very interesting about it. And I'm like, I don't know anything about the group. Like, I've tried to go to their website. I've tried to, like, dig deeper to see, like, what's the agenda or what's... But even, like, in going to their website and stuff, there's not much there. And I remember, like, telling James, like, because he was sitting next to me, and I'm like, yeah, they're... I, there's some, I like these commercials are interesting to me. I just don't know like what else is there. And then it was like the next day, you know, all, you know, my news sources, the Babylon Bee and whatnot. Um, that's satire news. Uh, but that's normally my first read on stuff. Um, it's like clearly there was a bunch of people like coming out against this stuff. And I was like, huh, interesting. So then they kind of like, they kind of nitpicked it. And I was like, huh. That's it. Okay, maybe I like misread. Maybe I'm like not as good as a Bible teacher understanding because like I totally misread that and I kind of I kind of interpreted it a different way. But now that they're saying that, I can see how they're saying this stuff. And the the take was is that the commercial kind of you have all of these like person doing stuff sort of functioning in the role of Jesus to individuals that would be more like outcast to society. And and so I kind of took it like, yeah, Jesus would do that. Jesus would love these individuals. But then the interpretation on the one side was, oh, 
they're viewing this like Jesus is endorsing these. And I'm like, well, if that's the case, I don't, I don't think that that's the case. And then it was like two days later, the, 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 uh, the Babylon Bee, or maybe it was not the Bee, posted another blog about it that was like, well, here's another take on it that kind of took it like, yeah, Jesus gets you and he meets you and he changes you and he like does a work in your life. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I was thinking when I saw it. Like, kinda. And so when I see this story, this commercial kind of comes, it's kind of been in my mind probably because I saw the commercial. I knew this text was coming. So I have these two things like floating around in my brain. And, and so here this leper comes to Jesus. His life is a mess. He cries out to Jesus, asking to be cleansed, asking to be restored. And Jesus says, I am willing. I will touch you. I did touch you. And he says, be cleansed. And we're going to read that this guy was cleansed immediately. Like the leprosy went away. This man knew that within him, he was restored. And so, yes, Jesus got him. Yes, Jesus gets us. Yes, Jesus touches us, but also Jesus transforms us. We are, in we are sinners and we're in desperate need of a savior. And he touched this man. He transforms this man. And then he gives this man some instructions. So we read, and immediately the leprosy left him. And after the, after the leprosy left him. It's not like he goes on his way. We have to understand and remember that as we uh, read through the gospel accounts, Jesus lived under the Mosaic law. He honored the Mosaic law. He fulfilled the Mosaic law. And then he died, and then he was buried, and then he rose again, and then the Spirit came, and then the Mosaic law was like done away with because he fulfilled everything. But during this time, Jesus is living under and obeying the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 was very clear about the protocols for what to do with somebody who's a leper. Jesus doesn't enter, enter the scene, heal this guy with leprosy and say, you're good to go, bud. No, because Jesus knows that there are certain protocols and things that this man had to do to verify what had happened. And so he ordered him to tell no one. So this, keep this between me and you. You are healed, you are cleansed. But what you need to do, you need to go and to show yourself to the priest and to make an offering for your cleansing. So you are, you're, to, you're to go to the priest. He's to examine your skin. After he examines your skin and sort of like clears you for the next level, you need to go to the temple and you need to sacrifice an animal as sort of like a, a display to show, to remind you that there's consequences for your sin and the things that you did. And now this animal is going to suffer the consequence that was due you. And you're going to go through all of this protocol. It's fascinating that if you read, I'm not encouraging you to do it, but if you're to like really dig and to find out like in many modern day uh, Jewish leaders they believe that this, uh, this idea of leprosy and what we see in the Old Testament, that this is sort of like a, uh, an old uh, kind of consequence of God that existed back then, but doesn't exist now because, because now there's no temple and there's no way to remedy. So this is how they did it back then. But today, this sort of problem doesn't exist. Just sort of fascinating. But Jesus says you need to go to the priest, see the priest. Once the priest sort of declares you clean, then you follow all of the protocols described in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, 
uh, make yourself uh, a sacrifice just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So this guy, I think, goes there, does just as Jesus says, makes a sacrifice, people know this guy, and word is like spreading about like, what happened? How did you clear? And he's like, hey, Jesus touched me. He said he was willing, I'm clean. You know, reminds me of the guy. I don't know, all I know I was is blind. Now I can see that guy told me how, what happened. You know, like that's, that's, I'm, no, I'm no theologian. I'm just telling you what happened to me and he's on his way. And we see that through this guy's life, in verse 15, the news about him was spreading even farther and large crowds were gathering to him to be healed of their sicknesses. So this guy is healed of something deeper, but the people are cr- coming in like throngs of people to be sort of healed of their ailments. And we're told that Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. So the people are coming, Jesus is withdrawing. He's kind of going into isolation, solitude, praying, uh, seeking sort of solitude. His, his, his sort of mission, it doesn't seem, is to, to create this big show of, uh, I don't know, like, hey, let me just do a bunch of tricks for you to show you uh, what I can do. Um, this seems to be in privacy, but the crowds are growing and growing and growing. And then we see this next story. A couple days goes by, uh, different location. We're told in verse 17 that one day he was teaching. And there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee. Galilee is the region, not just the lake, but it's this big area. So they come from Galilee. They come from Judea, which is the southern part of Israel. And then from Jerusalem, which is sort of like the headquarters of of the Jewish faith and religion. That's where the the temple was. So all of these leaders are here. They'd heard stories about Jesus. They needed to now uh, authenticate, verify who uh, Jesus was, what his message was. Is he legitimate? Is he authentic? Uh, Can they condemn him? I don't know that they were necessarily trying to condemn him at this point, but they're trying to validate or verify who he is. And so there in this scene, um, where are we at here? Verse 17, they're there from every Galilee. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. So now he's there, he's teaching. Luke fills us in that there's going to be another miracle is going to happen here. Now the story, if we were like watching this in a movie, you'd be sort of inside the building with all of the throngs of people. Jesus is teaching but now we're going to shift outside and there's going to be a group of guys. There were some men, verse 18, carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. So there's a guy who's paralyzed. We don't know exactly, but for sure definitely seems like from the waist down because he can't walk. He could be from the waist down. He could be from the neck down. We just, we don't know. He's paralyzed. Something happened to this individual um, that, that took away his mobility. And these three, or the, I say three, we have some men, who are carrying this man, and they were trying to bring him in to set him down in front of Jesus. So they're trying to set him down in front of Jesus. They see the house. They know Jesus is in there. They can tell from the crowds, there's no way for him to get into that spot. And so they go, I got an idea. It's a little unorthodox, but just roll with me. Like <laughs> the paralyzed guy's like, well, I, I'm, whatever you guys do, I guess I'm going to do. Like I can't, I can't not do anything. And so they went up on the roof, and during this time, this is like a sort of like a town in the, the Mediterranean area where the buildings have flat roofs. 
And around the outside, they would have sort of stairs up the outside to the, to the terrace on the top where they could take care of stuff because it's so pleasant over there most of the time of the year. And, and so they go up to the terrace and they're on top above where they believe that Jesus is. They went up on the roof and they let him down through the tiles with his stretcher. I don't know who the owner of this house was, um, but as an individual who had to do a little bit of roof work on my roof this week because of the rains, I don't know that I would be very happy uh, with this situation. But so they're up there. They start removing tiles. I don't, I, like, I don't know if there was dirt and straw and stuff, but like always when I read this story, I kind of like imagine, like what if somebody's like with a, something above me? Like I imagine that before the holes cleared out, there's gonna be like little sprinkling of stuff, you know, and maybe some clumps coming down. And I don't know how good Jesus's attention was, but like, you know, we don't, like in this picture, it just kind of happens really fast. They're up there, they open a hole and it's like, there's a skylight, boom, like, and everything's just ready to go. But this had to be a scene where there's all these people, Jesus there teaching, and now there's like a skylight. And then all of a sudden there's like a dude on a stretcher with a bunch of lines. And then do the guys hop down from the roof or do the guys stay up there with their heads poking through? There's so much information that I wish we had that the Bible doesn't necessarily give us. They went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with a stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. This is what we have. So in my mind, the three guys are still up there that was pretty good. We got him like with it. Like, hey guys, we nailed it. Like he's right in front of Jesus. Uh, and now they're just like waiting. And the next thing we see is seeing their faith. So Jesus sees their faith. Who, like, who's the there? Is it the, th- the, th- I have three guys in my mind. I don't know why. Is it the three guys Peering through the skylight, good job, boys. You know, like that's right there. Now we did everything we could do. Or is it all of them? Like I imagine at some point they're on the roof and they're they're talking to their they're talking to their paralyzed buddy, like, hey, this is our idea. What do you think about this? He's like, let's do it. Let's go for it. Like, well, what if I drop you? And he's like, I'm already paralyzed. Like I like, like I'm like, what are you gonna do? I, you know. I like watching extreme sports and there's some guy like that's a quadrant, not a quadrant, he's a paralyzed from the waist down, but he does this crazy stuff in wheelchairs, like launching off stuff. And uh, his, he's married and his wife doesn't like it. He's like, what am I gonna do? Am I, am I already paralyzed? Like I'm so like clear, but there's some like, I mean, there had to be a discussion that Jesus is aware of that they decided to do this thing that seems to be not the wisest And Jesus interprets this as seeing their faith. And he looks at the guy at his feet and he says, your sins are forgiven you. Now again, as we look at the story and we try to put ourselves in this, this, this individual's position, I've always sort of read this story and thought, that's great and all, Jesus, but I came for a different reason. Like, (laughs) I'm paralyzed. I didn't come for my sins. I came for my, like, I want to be able to walk again. But there's no, there's no real commentary. We just, 
we just see that they were, they were carrying this man who was paralyzed. They wanted to get him to sit down. Earlier in the context, we see that people who had sicknesses and they wanted healing. So I think it's fair that this guy wanted healing. We, we also know throughout the New Testament account, when there were issues like this, it was so often interpreted as there was some sort of sin issue, issue with the individual and their problems were connected to their sin. And as you read through the account, so often they would encounter somebody and even the disciples would look at Jesus and they'd say like, who's responsible for this man's problems? Was it his sin or his parents' sin or his grandparents' sin? Why does this person have this individual? Why does this individual have these problems? And so here Jesus looks at this individual and he says, your sins are forgiven. And before we can, like, we can't even get into how the guy responds. We don't see how his buddies respond. We don't see any of that. Luke immediately goes to these individuals that we met earlier who came from the Galilee region, who came from Judea, who came from Jerusalem, the religious authority who came to sort of investigate Jesus. Part of the reason that this guy had to go through this healing is because in the midst of the crowd, there were a bunch of people who could care less about what Jesus was teaching. They weren't there to get the message. They were there to condemn Jesus. They were there to be critical of him. And here this guy comes to the ceiling. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And immediately Luke points the attention to the critics. And the critics... In verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Blasphemy is something that you would get the capital punishment if you blasphemed, if you said something about God that wasn't true about God, or you tried to take take, uh, responsibility as God for something that only God can do. Says, so who is this that speaks blasphemy? So from their mind, Jesus is a, just a rabbi, is a man. And he tells this man that his sins have been forgiven. And in that, blasphemy has occurred in their mind. They all probably gasped audibly. And then they asked the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? So they understood that I can't forgive sins, you can't forgive sins, they can't forgive sins. The only person who has the capacity to issue forgiveness for sins is God alone. And Jesus, in front of this huge crowd, just forgave this guy of his sins, or he claimed to forgive this guy of his sins. And so they're really upset. But in the midst of the crowd, Jesus is aware of their reasons. He can sense what they're thinking, what they're saying, what they're murmuring to one another, And he answers to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Why are you guys being critical of me? I have a couple questions for you guys. What's what's easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier to, to heal somebody? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Now, I don't know if they... uh, answered this question, like if they didn't want to answer this question, if they couldn't answer this question, or they didn't want to answer this question. Like, I don't know how they handled this, but now Jesus has them in a real pickle because he asked them a question. Okay, I've already done this. I've already said their sins are forgiven. And you're being critical of me because you say only God can do that. So therefore, is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or is it easier for me to say, get up and walk to this man who's paralyzed for a very long time and everybody is aware of this man? Like, this isn't 
This isn't the bait and switch where they have a non-paralyzed guy that they've snuck in to fool every, like they all knew who this guy was. And so obviously, obviously it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Like anybody can say that your sins are forgiven. But the issue is, are your sins actually, for, like if, if you say, oh, your sins are forgiven, does that mean your sins are actually forgiven or not? Like that's, you can say whatever you want, but, but something about sin, that's, that's below the surface level. That's something that only God can really know whether it was effective or not effective. We can only guess. And Jesus knows that these questions that they ask them have this answer. There's, there's no way for them to answer any other way. It's obvious, it's easy. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. According to our law, that's blasphemy and you should be punished. And so Jesus continues in verse 24. And I think verse 24 is probably one of the most important verses like in the New Testament as far as sort of the, the, the charismatic movement and faith healing and the, the health, wealth, and prosperity sort of message that's out there. Jesus says, so that you may know. I've said this guy's sins are forgiven. This is the most important thing that I'm saying today. This is the point of my, 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 my coming to earth as, a, as, a, as fully human, fully God. It's my mission here is to forgive sins. And what I've said to this individual, I've seen their faith. And as their faith was exercised, I saw that. I understood their hearts were correct. I have let them know his sins have been forgiven. This is the most important point of today's story. This is the most important and critical and crucial problem that this paralyzed man was facing is that he was a sinner and he was separated from his creator. But Jesus says, but so that you may know that the son of man, first time that the word son of man is used in the gospel of Luke, has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is uh, going back to Daniel, I believe chapter nine, verse 27, when Daniel prophesied that the Messiah would come, Jesus now refers to himself as the son of man, acknowledging that he's the Messiah. He says, I understand your criticism. If I wasn't the son of man and I said this very thing, you would be correct in your assessment. That would be blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. And to show you that I am indeed the son of man and that you may know who I am and that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and clean up your mess and go home. Like pick up your stuff. Like you don't need your stretch anymore, but just take it. Like this is somebody else's house. I don't know how they resolved the roof situation, but it was like, this is huge. Um, this whole miracle and the miracles in the New Testament, their, their purpose, better than miracle, I think we should refer to them as signs. They happen to authenticate and just demonstrate who Jesus is alone. That is their purpose. There are things far more important than our physical health and our prosperity. And I think so often in our suffering and our sickness, we miss out on what God is actually doing in our midst. 
a few years ago, maybe a decade ago, it could have been, I don't know, time flies by now. Like, but John Piper wrote a little pamphlet book on like, like, don't, what is, like don't, don't waste your cancer. And in this little pamphlet, dealing with cancer and those who are dying with cancer, he's like, so often that as Christians, all, like, or people in general, you have a problem, all you want is that problem to be solved. And his point was that, and it's so hard to communicate this, like, more importantly than your cancer, your life, your death, there's your relationship with God. So God can heal you, and you might still die of terminal cancer because the healing that you need is wholeness of your heart and soul that only Jesus can provide to restore you back to the Father who you've been separated from because of your sin. And so Jesus says, I'm about to show you this so that you may know that I am the Son of Man, that I am the Messiah, and that I have authority to say your sins are forgiven. The only reason this man is healed was to demonstrate to the crowds that Jesus' identity was the Messiah. And so he says, get up, pick up your stuff, and walk on out of here. In verse 25, immediately, he got up before them. I, this is like a whole scene of, of like, I can, like the buddies on the roof, like I would probably fall into because I was so amazed at what was happening. The guy gets up. I'm just imagining total silence. He got up before them. He picked up what he'd been lying on and he went home glorifying God. It gives me goosebumps to imagine this scene. Swindoll says on this, this point, he was brought to Jesus in faith in a great big God. And he walked away with the concept of an even bigger God. Like this whole scene started with Jesus acknowledging, I see your faith, your sins are forgiven. The story could have ended there. And the guy, I think, would have been content because of his faith. The guy's moaning and groaning because Jesus said what he said. Then Jesus goes ahead and tacks on the healing, which is like, like in the grand scheme of things, this really isn't like an important thing, but Jesus gives it to them so that the onlookers could see who Jesus is. And so this guy goes away glorifying God, just praising God. I wish we could learn more about this guy. I wish we could hear like what he told his family, what he told his friends. I don't know that he needed to say much because the evidence was sort of in the pudding, as they say. And then we're told in verse 26, they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. There's so much to this. Like we know, like the scribes and the Pharisees have such a bad reputation throughout the New Testament because they were going after Jesus. But we also know in Acts that many of them came to faith. Like the apostle Paul was, was one who eventually came to faith. Like how many of these guys, because we're told they were all, Everybody in this crowd who witnessed this, they were all struck with astonishment. They were in awe of the thing that they just saw. There was no questioning what happened in their midst. They began glorifying God just as the guy who got up. They were all just in adoration of God and his great power and wonder. And they were filled with fear. Same reaction as last week when Peter recognized what Jesus had done with the fish, he fell on his face in absolute fear and told Jesus to depart for him because they had nothing to do with each other. These guys are in astonishment. They're glorifying God and they have great fear. Like, who is this man? Like, who is this? And then they, they clearly are lacking words because they say the least remarkable thing in all of this. They said, we have seen remarkable things today. <laughs> like, 
duh, like this is, this is like overwhelming. So then the question is like, what do we, like when I look at these two stories sort of combined, what do we, what do, we do with them? Yesterday during the men's Bible study, we're going through Ephesians and we got to, that's like the very end of, of Ephesians chapter three. And Paul is praying for the saints in Ephesus. And one of his prayer, like in the little like doxology or whatever it is, the last couple of verses right before the amen, he's saying like, I, I pray that you believers would understand the breadth and width and height and depth of the love of God for you. And so when we come to this passage, what these people needed was a bigger vision of who God is. And I think that there's something as you, like what we kind of talked about, what we mentioned as we talked about this verse is if you start looking at astrology and you look at creation and you start looking at how small the earth is compared to the stars that are there and you look at all of the things and how everything just happens to work. Like it takes a whole lot more faith to be an atheist than to be, to be a, a creationist. Like, I'm, like just, just in that, just to think that all of this happens, that there just happens to be life. And when scientists tell us, like, if the earth was tilted like a smidge, I don't know the technical specs, but it's like a smidge, one way or the other, life couldn't exist. If, if all of the things in this planet were just like a smidge off, like it wouldn't be what it is. And then the atheist tells us like, man, this is really crazy how the Big Bang thing, how all this explosion, all this stuff just kind of came into order and through that, poof, you know? couple million years and everything's perfect, you know, like that's their God is the time to, like that's all we needed was more time to make it come to, to order. We all know with our bodies that you give a little bit more time, things just fall apart. Like it's not, like it goes the other, it goes the other way. Like, and so whether you go to the big thing of the stars, the moons and our creation, or you go down to the like the microscopic level and you're looking at the cellular stuff for like what create, like what life is, just as mind-boggling. And so we need to like understand how big God is because as we like take into account who he is, it really puts into focus who we are and that we have this great need like the leper. We have this deep need to be reconciled to God because there's something within us that we know deep within that is not whole. And every time we lose a loved one to death, we're, we're, we're confronted with the reality that something just isn't right. Like there's something in this world that isn't right because we know according to Solomon that God has placed eternity in our hearts. So when we're faced with death, when we're faced with sickness, when we're faced with all of these horrible things, something isn't the way it's supposed to be. And that's because sin entered the world. And so as we look at Jesus and we see his, his ability and his desire to reconcile us to God, and not only has, if you've been reconciled to God, if you've received forgiveness for your sins, if you've come to Jesus by faith and you have been restored to him, we're also told that he desires us, he commissions us and he places us into action to be his ambassadors of re reconciliation. That his ministry is reconciliation, bringing the lost to their father and showing that there's forgiveness due the death, burial, 
and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that we can receive this reconciliation through faith. We have been commissioned into this. And I love Debbie's vision, you know, like around the church now, I see all these little bookmarks, like the the pyramid scheme of like, if we just reach one person this year, and then that person in the next year reaches two, but we're already ahead because there's already hundreds of us. So we only have like, you know, like this like understanding of our responsibility that God has given to us, it's huge. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, I'm just gonna kind of end with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21, this, this responsibility that we have been given. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. That's a huge one. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That Jesus gave everything for us and he wants us to give all of us to him. That our lives would be in his hands and just say, Lord, here I am, use me however you see fit. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. The guy who cut you off, the gangbanger with tattoos all over his face, the, you, like the religious person who's super mean to you, whoever, I'm not gonna start listing people who I know that you guys have problems with, but like, <laughs> we have people that we have problems with. Could be your spouse, could be your parents, could be your grandkids, could be like whoever it is. As those who've humbled ourselves and accepted Christ's gift of forgiveness and reconciliation, we're told, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Amen? That's huge. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Now these things are from God who reconciled us to him through Christ. This is the first time we see reconciled in this section. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He's reconciled us to him. He then says, now that you've been reconciled, hey, you're in ministry now. Not, that doesn't mean you're a pastor. That doesn't mean you're paid for whatever. You're in ministry because you're a follower of Christ. And he said, here's this ministry that you've been given. Your ministry is a ministry of reconciliation, going to the world and letting them know that there is a savior who has died for them, that he loves them and that he's made possible for them to get right with God, to be reconciled with God. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them as he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This is huge. There are people who have wronged us. Might've been your parents, might've been your spouse, might've been the teller wherever, or the guy who's driving the car in front of you, or the criminal who's behind bars. We're told we no longer see those people through the flesh, which means I want them crushed. I want them to suffer, and I want them to feel the pain of what I felt, but I want it multiplied. No, we're told that I wronged God. And that God took my sin, which was far worse than anything that anybody's ever done to me, and he took it from me. He paid for it. And now he wants me to operate under this sort of banner of love. And so therefore for me, my biological mom who was abusive to me, who did a bunch of horrible things to me, I can say she's forgiven. 
Her sins are between her and God, but as far as me, we're good. There are other people that God's still working on me to like let go, like, but we're called to this. Like, no, I need to see you through Christ's eyes. These individuals who have wronged us, these are people for whom Christ died and our ministry is given to us to help show them who Jesus is. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. This word ambassador is like a huge word for like anybody. I think for people in the military who have like actually gone overseas, like this is a word that like strikes a different like tone. Uh, for, for my background in the military, we traveled all over the world. And anytime we entered a new country, there was like a briefing of like the customs and cultures and that sort of thing. And, and it was made very clear to us, hey guys, it's very important for you to understand that you're not there as your own self. You're there as an ambassador for the United States. And so these, unfortunately, like the Americans have a horrible reputation, even the military guys. I was reminded of this last month in Rhoda, but it's like, you're supposed to understand that you represent something bigger than yourself. And the Bible tells us for those who are in Christ, we're ambassadors for Christ. We carry his name as Christians. So therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. That should terrify you. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so when I look at these two guys, the guy with leprosy, the paralyzed guy, and my own life, the song that everybody loves, Amazing Grace, just like it means so much when you've experienced it because this is amazing news, this is amazing grace. And that line in there, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And Father, we do thank you for these stories of these two men who had physical problems, but the physical problems were simply agents in their life to bring them to the real problem, their separation from you. They knew it, they felt it, and they came to you by faith. And so, Father, I pray that you would just transform our understanding, help us to see problems and sufferings in our life as agents that you have provided to draw us closer to you, agents to refine us to become more like Christ. We pray, Father, as we go about our days in this fallen world with suffering, with brokenness, with sickness, that you would help us to not just look at these things through the physical realm, but we would see these things also through the spiritual realm, things that uh, we have to learn through them so that we could be more like Christ. We pray that you would help us to be more like him day to day. We pray that you would increase our faith, increase our trust in you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be a light unto this world who is uh, in desperate need of a savior, whether or not they realize it. We love you, God. And it's in Christ's good name I pray, amen.